0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're actually approaching the last two chapters of a study that we started in January. There's been a lot of ground covered. Really serious matters that the Apostle Paul has had to address. And today he comes back to the basics of the Gospel. The very first principles of that which these people have believed. If you've been around this church or any other church for very long, you might have heard this particular passage, 1 Corinthians 15, preached on Easter Sunday. It is a classic resurrection passage. I'm convinced there's more here to it than just that, but we'll find that as well. Let's pick up at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11. Remember, this is God's Word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for the the help of your Holy Spirit. That you would give to your people the ears that they might hear what your Spirit says to the church that you, Lord, would give your spirit to me, that you would be willing to use an ordinary, wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ. These are not simple words, they are true. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. In music, the best I can think of is, is notes and scales. In reading, it would be the ABCs. In math, it's adding and subtracting. In football, it's, it's blocking and tackling. In golf, it would be how do you hold the club. In driving, it's putting on your seatbelt and learning to turn the key. Every time you've ever learned anything in your whole life, you had to begin with first principles. And everything that you learn from that point forward is built off those first principles. And a lot of times, if you get further down the road in what you've learned and you begin to fail, you have to go back to the first principles to remember how it was supposed to be. And so it is with the gospel. You never outgrow the first principles. Jesus is God. He came from heaven to earth. He was born of a virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. He, though innocent, died on a Roman cross to pay for the sins of His people. He remained in the ground for three days. He rose from the dead. He walked on the face of the earth for 40 days, making various appearances. And then He ascended into heaven in the sight of many witnesses. And now he is at, the present, at the, in the presence of God. So that the writer to the Hebrews can say in chapter 7, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who would draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Notes and scales. Blocking, tackling. ABCs. You never outgrow the first principles. In fact, when you grow in Christ, you appreciate more perfectly the beauty of those first principles. The simple good news of Jesus Christ. But, but are there moments, I wonder, when you forget why those first principles matter? when you feel like you need to, to move on, when you feel like you need to get past the basics and on to something more meaningful, could it be that you don't actually have to outgrow those first principles, but rather you need to go back to those principles, to the basics, and let them saturate your heart? That's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In all the issues that he's addressed in this letter It is profound and deliberate that he returns to the dead, buried, resurrected, now alive Savior. And so our passage teaches us that the gospel hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we study this passage, we're going to briefly look at the gospel summons, the gospel certainty. And then finally, the gospel motivation. Let's start with the gospel summons. It's in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. The gospel is the common ground upon which the entire universal church has stood historically, so that your very existence as Christians sits on this one matter. You heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You received it by faith. And you, by profession, make your stand on that truth. But this is not like some light cognitive awareness. As if I believe this information more than I sort of believe that information. What does it mean to receive the gospel? How does it so saturate your heart... That you would build your whole life off of that one truth. How is that possible? The word is repentance. And so as one 375 year old historic confession says, repentance unto life is a saving grace. Whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ offered us, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from that sin unto God. And then he endeavors after an ongoing new obedience. You receive the gospel. How did you receive the gospel? Because the Lord brought your heart to a place of repentance, which leads you to look for Christ for salvation. And in him then you get a righteousness that you clearly do not deserve. So after all of the confusion, all of the immaturity, all of the chaos that has reigned in Corinth, Paul says, I want to remind you that you were justified by faith. It's the bedrock of everything you are. So he says, do not leave it. You've been justified. Now you've also been sanctified. Take a look at verse 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. That's sanctification language. You are being saved. You have already been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Today, you are in the process of being saved. God's Holy Spirit continues to work in you, convicting you of sin, pointing you back to the one way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you walk with Christ, you know, there are times that the Holy Spirit actually argues with you over what you want to do, over what you feel or think would be best. The Spirit argues with you and says, Nope, double-check the Word, double-check the Gospel that was preached, so why is this conditional statement attached to the end of it? Look at it. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Some of us would read that and go, well, that's clearly a contradiction. Am I saved or am I not saved? Is my salvation secure or is it not secure? Some of you may have been rock climbing. You've been on a ropes course before. You've been repelling. If you have, you know precisely What I'm talking about, if you haven't, the concept is so obvious. In these various events, you've got ropes that are all attached to these various latches, which are called carabiners. And right before you're about to make your climb, nobody has to tell you, hey, you're completely secure on these ropes unless you unlatch the carabiner. Why does nobody tell you that? Because it's obvious. That's the one thing around my waist that's holding me. But sometimes spiritually speaking, it's not so obvious. So the Lord provides a kind of gospel summons. Hold fast to Christ. Do not unlatch yourself from Christ. Keep Walking with him, you are saved, you stand in Christ, you're being saved, hold fast to the one who saved you. Now, why does the Bible speak at these two different levels? With a statement about what is true in Christ, it's this this high, lofty, profound spiritual truth, and then it also speaks at ground level with this command. It speaks that way because your life is lived at ground level. And so the Lord condescends to speak to you in ways that you can comprehend. These ropes, they go all the way up to the top. I don't totally know how they're secure up there at the top. But if somebody tells me that I'm attached, and then I I lean on the rope and I know it for sure, well, then I'm secure. Justification. Sanctification is like telling you that the, that the top of the rope is secure. But then this conditional statement sits around my waist if I hold fast to the word that was preached. It's like telling you, do not unlatch the harness around your waist. Because in real life, spiritually speaking, you and I make decisions to hold fast to the gospel Or not. And we make those decisions daily. Let me explain to you what I'm not saying. I am not saying that to sin is to release yourself from Christ. I am saying that to sin and then to refuse to come back to Christ and own it, that's to unlatch yourself from Christ. We all sin. In various ways. It is far worse to add to the sin a hard attitude that says, I'm going to just do this on my own. This is a biblical interpretation 101. There are times that the Bible speaks of things that are above our heads and times that it speaks of things which are right before our eyes. Do you see what is right before your eyes today? It's a gospel summons. And with it, a capacity to hold fast to the word that is being preached to you today. And then notice that last phrase in verse 2. Unless you believed in vain. Believe in vain? The only way to believe the gospel in vain is to receive the word of God And stand on the word of God. And then let go of the word of God that you have received. To believe in vain is to walk away from the truth of the gospel and its application to your life. That which once meant the world to you now conflicts with the way that you want to live your life. And so you go, well, I think I'll let go. That can happen when you're a freshman in college. It can also happen ten years into marriage and three children later. You know, I can't control everything. I can't really control anything. But I can cling to Jesus. I can cling to the word that has been preached to me, and I can follow his word. That I can control. That's a gospel summons. Hold fast to the word preached. That's the gospel summons. I want to show you the gospel certainty. And it is rooted in the fact that the gospel hangs on the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You can tell as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians that there are some people who doubt Paul's authority. They question his authority. And because he preaches this doctrine of resurrection, some are beginning to doubt that. And so verse 3 to 7 affirms the certainty of the gospel that you believe in. Now this is a classic Easter passage. I have preached it on Easter myself. But let's be clear. Paul is not here to prove the resurrection of Jesus. He's actually saying that the whole Christian faith hangs on the resurrection of Christ, and it's an unquestionable truth. It's so well attested that it cannot really even be brought into question. What you question, says Paul, to Corinth and to us, is how and why the resurrection matters to me today. Paul says, I didn't come up with the message, I, I received it myself like a treasure and I, and I turned and I passed the treasure on to you. And there's two times in the verses that this word received is given. He's basically saying, long ago, before the apostles, the Old Testament scriptures foretold that the Messiah must die and He must atone for our sins. Have you have ever read the book of Exodus, Leviticus? numbers you read those books and you constantly see this word atone atonement atonement some way to deal with the the past wrong in the old testament atonement is made through the death of an animal in a sacrifice or on occasion it's made through the payment of money the Bible says Christ died for your sins, and it means that he made a payment to deal with the wrong of the sins that you had committed and I had committed. And the scripture said it was coming, and it came, and it was the most essential thing which turned all of human history. Now in the original language, there's, there's no such thing as quotation marks like we have in English. And so the way that you distinguish something that you generally want to quote is you use a particular clause. And in English, what you do is you attach the word that to it, which tells us this is what he's about to quote. Here is what Paul passed on. That Christ died for our sins in according with the scriptures, verse 3. That he was buried. Verse 4, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's the substance of the main message. And it's so reliable that it predates the apostles by more than a thousand years in some cases. And the fulfillment of those passages was immediately picked up on by these first believers. Because the detail was astounding. The Messiah must be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. But somehow he also has to come out of Egypt, Hosea 11. He must be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. And yet he's got to come out of the family line of David, Isaiah 11, Psalm 110. He must look like everyone else, and yet he must suffer like no one else, Isaiah 53. He had to be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. He had to be betrayed by his friends, Psalm 41. They're going to cast lots for his clothes, but they will not tear his clothes, Psalm 22. The Messiah is going to hang on a tree of wood, Deuteronomy 21. And while he hangs there, he's also going to be hanging with a bunch of lawbreakers, Isaiah 53. And he's going to die... But before he dies, there's going to be darkness in the sky. Like the sun won't shine. Amos 8. And yet, when he dies, none of his bones will be broken. Psalm 34. And of course, they're going to bury him in the tomb of a rich man. Isaiah 53. And he's got to lie in that tomb dead for long enough to prove that he's dead, but not so long that his body begins to decay. That's Psalm 16. And then he must rise from the dead. And it was foretold in Isaiah 53 and Daniel 12 and even Hosea 6. The Old Testament is about a faithful God who makes extravagant promises and then fulfills every one. Adam understood that. So, did Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And so, when a small band of Jews who'd been following this man named Jesus of Nazareth saw him die, and then they saw him alive after he died, it clicked. God did it again. This is vintage Yahweh. This is exactly who our God has always been. Big promises. Fulfilled in profound detail. The reliability of Scripture declared that the Lamb of God had come and He was there to take away the sins of the world. But then gospel certainty goes even further. Take a look at verse 6. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the other apostles. Now the reference to to five hundred, It may be from Matthew chapter 28. We're not sure. But here's how you know that, that, that what Paul is making is an accurate statement. He challenges his readers to go and check the evidence. Jesus rose from the dead, but you don't have to take my word for it. There's almost 500 people still living that will tell you the exact same thing. If the apostles were convinced that Jesus did not rise from the dead, they would never invite doubters to investigate the story. Paul welcomes them. Oh, please come and ask other people. This is empirical evidence that is written in the lifetime of the very eyewitnesses who are still walking on the face of the earth. How many, how many eyewitnesses would it take to convict someone of Murder? In a trial? Two? Three? But if you had five, I mean, that would be an open and shut case. Paul says, what does 500 do for you? Does that help you recognize that there is absolutely no question about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? There are historical events That all of us in this room believe to be fact that had far less witnesses than 500. After Jesus appeared to the 500, he appeared individually to James. Who is James? Most likely this is Jesus' half-brother whose name is James who along with the other children of Mary and Joseph didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah throughout his life. All the way to the end of his earthly ministry. And yet it's really strange, you get to the book of Acts and James is pastoring the church in Jerusalem. And then James becomes the writer of this New Testament book that bears his name. And you go, how did this happen? Paul tells you. It happened because he met his resurrected half-brother. And he said, you're my Lord. Those who seek to dispel the resurrection of Jesus from the dead really deeply desire his resurrection to be untrue. Because the resurrection makes so many demands and a a response must come. But you then, of course, have to explain why 12 plus hundreds more spent the rest of their lives claiming they saw Jesus walking around and eating and drinking and talking and laughing after he died. And then you have to explain why so many of them were willing to go to their graves believing what they saw. And why many of them went to the grave because of what they saw. And they never would stop talking about it. Even to the point of death. Now if you lived in the first century, the quickest way to dispel this problematic rumor is just simply to produce the body. You need to explain then why, when Jerusalem is most full of people because of the Passover, when it is filled with legions of Roman soldiers, these dorky 11 guys get to steal the body in the early hours of the morning while there's guards standing watch. How did they pull off this ruse? They suddenly got brave. They've been running for their lives for the past 24 hours and then they got brave. Now listen, as the pastor of this church, my, primarily, my primary concern is not to convince the unconvinced. That's really not what Paul's doing here either. My concern, and I think Paul's concern, is to take you back to first principles to remind you that how you live today is a response to gospel resurrection. In the early chapters of this letter, we saw that the Corinthian believers are living way more like the world than they are like those who have been saved. They're still heavily influenced by the world's thinking. In Greek philosophy, this is the way they thought about the body. Death is is a deliverance from the body. And so what they did with their bodies in this life is nearly irrelevant. Eventually, When we die, our souls and our spirits will be freed from this skin, this shell. And it will fall away and we'll be free. But Jesus teaches that the body is eternal. And that the spirit and soul are eternal. And His death in a physical body redeems your physical body. And it also redeems your spiritual soul. Therefore, the body is redeemed in Christ today. And it is to be used for freedom to glorify God. Now listen, if you do not know Christ, then you need to be very clear. Your death has a purpose in God's economy. It is the first of many payments that you will make throughout eternity to pay for your own sins. If you trust in Christ by faith, then suddenly the payment is made. If you'll take your bulletin and flip back with me to that question that I referenced at 42... Heidelberg Catechism, it says, Our death does not pay the debt of our sins. Rather, it puts an end to our sinning. And is an entrance into eternal life. Suddenly, the believer who dies in Christ by faith is free. He's not free from the body as if the body was the problem all along. He's free from sin, which has always been the problem. Here's how the gospel hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wanted to use the Heidelberg Catechism to to say it succinctly. These are first principles. Question 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. So that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you don't have any right standing with God. But He did rise from the dead. Which means that even when you see yourself sin and you feel overcome by guilt and shame, the Bible declares in Christ you're righteous in spite of how you actually feel. The resurrection won a righteousness for you. Second, by His power, we, are, we too are already raised to a new life. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you have no power over sin. And I promise you, you're still stuck. But if Christ rose from the dead, then you have a power to live above the enslavement that once held you so tightly around the throat. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, you need to live these 70 years on this earth with complete uncertainty. And I don't think I'm doing so well. I may be in trouble when this is over. But because Jesus rose from the dead... Just like the people of the Old Testament, the Bible says, I have a, a big God who makes big promises and He keeps every one of them. In Christ, I too will rise from the dead. The gospel hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. Now we've seen the gospel summons, the gospel certainty. We're going to close with the gospel motivation. Take a look at verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. These verses kind of pull the curtain back on on Paul's heart. And suddenly you see how grace motivated this man who sought to crush the church into a man who would be willing to die for the church and die for the Savior. Having appeared to everyone else, the resurrected Lord met Paul on the road to Damascus. Gospel motivation begins with unworthiness. Look at that phrase. As to one untimely born, or as one who was untimely born. It's a a phrase that's really graphic. It actually means like abortion or miscarriage. In the ancient world, as one who could have died, I lived because of the loving kindness of God which appeared to me. How do you know that Paul understands his unworthiness? Because he keeps going back and connecting it to his past record of sins. I hurt the children of the Heavenly Father. You ask any mother or father how things will go for you if you pick on their children. And they will say, I am certain that you deserve my wrath. And you do. Paul says, I actually deserve the wrath of God because I wasn't picking on... Nobody. I was picking on the children of God. I am unworthy of God's mercy. Some of you may no longer be motivated by the gospel. Maybe you're no longer motivated to a transformed life. And if that is so, it may be because you have somewhere along the way forgotten your own unworthiness. That's where gospel motivation starts, but it doesn't stay there. God's grace poured over to me, and it accomplished what God always attended, intended. And that is that I would have a heart of gratitude to come and serve the king. Look at verse 10, "But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Here's the testament. God's grace was toward me was so effective that it made me desire to work harder, but it wasn't me working all along. It was the Spirit of God at work within me. I want you to think about two of the songs that are present in our bulletin today. The first one is, Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing Thy praise. The other song is the one we're about to sing. Amazing grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. That hymn writer is John Newton. A former slave trader. Unworthy man. Transformed and sanctified over many years. And here's how he explained what we're talking about. He says, I am Not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. We're going to close with a very fine but very clear distinction. There are many today who occupy pulpits and preach a gospel different from what the apostles died preaching. You need to ask this question when you hear preaching. Is the message that is preached hanging on the resurrection? Or is this a message that would stand alone just fine if Jesus never rose From the dead. Some preach today that that Jesus gave came to give you life purpose. That's not why the apostles died. Some preach that Jesus came so that you might make a difference in the world. Some will tell you that, that the purpose of the gospel is to give you feelings of joy or to bring about restoration in the social order. Those are not the message for which Christ died. Those are all fruits of the true gospel, but they're not the gospel. Look at verse 2 again. The gospel is preached to save you from your sins. To bring you out of eternal condemnation into, into a right standing with God. A right standing that you really don't deserve. Paul says, when I realized that, It moved me to work for the sake of my Lord who had redeemed me. The gospel hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. Without it, we have no hope. In Christ, it is certain. Let's pray.